following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Good morning, IBC. My name's Craig, and I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. Those of you that are in the room, those of you that are joining us online, thanks for being here. Today is Sunday, Father's Day, the day that we have set aside, and by we've set aside, I mean the greeting card companies have set aside to honor us dads, right? Today is our day. We get to sit back, relax, kick up our feet. We get control of the remote control today. We get to decide what we want to watch. We get to decide where we want to go to lunch. Uh, I'm pretty sure Babe's Chicken's going to be standing room only today. We get to decide the activities we want to do today, the ones we don't want to do today. No one's going to expect you to make up the bed or clean the kitchen or take out the trash or mow the yard. Nothing is going to be expected of the fathers today. How does that sound? Yeah, pretty good. Well, my wife says it sounds like Tuesday or Wednesday or pretty much any other day of the week. But you know what? That's okay. Probably a little truth to that. But today I can do all that guilt-free. So... Um, seriously, seriously though, we want to honor and celebrate our fathers, the fathers that are in our midst. Dads make such a huge difference in a family's life. Study after study has shown that uh, families where fathers are present and engaged uh, just do better. And so thank you, dads, for the sacrifices that you make for your family, for the love that you show, for all the hard work that you do for your family. Uh, but yeah. But we know the opposite of that is also true. And some of you are here today and this is a difficult day for you. Maybe this day brings up some pain because you grew up without a father or a father who was absent, a father who was overly critical, maybe a father who was even abusive. Or maybe you were that father and you look back over your parenting years with a lot of regret and remorse. Um, I just hope today's message will be encouraging to everyone as we look into the heart of our heavenly dad And just see his perfect love towards us, love that uh, heals us and restores us. Uh, But what we know is that the way we perceive that heavenly dad, uh, uh, the the way we interact with that heavenly dad is influenced greatly by how we experience and perceive our earthly dad. And so some of you are sitting here today and you see God as the benevolent, loving king of the universe, uh, a faithful friend, a constant companion. But others of you are here today and you see him as a bit of an angry, uh, judgmental um, uh, dad that's just hard to relate to. And so you find yourself hiding from him and separating yourself from him because how you see God affects how you live your life. We started with, in this series with that great quote from A.W. Tozer where he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because it shapes us. It shapes how we live. It shapes how we relate to other people. It shapes how we relate to God. And so this series, I think, is just so important. Because our God is a God who wants to be known. He longs for us to know his heart. He wants to be in relationship with us. But for there to be a right relationship with this God, we have to have a right understanding of who he is. And so I think God must have anticipated from the very beginning that our limited, finite minds would eventually have a propensity to confuse and to distort and to misunderstand who he is and how his heart relates to us and to the world. And so way back in the beginning, just the second book in the Bible, 
God wants to make it clear. Moses comes to God with a pretty bold request. And, and I just want us to put ourselves in Moses' shoes here. It's probably, I think he's at an emotionally fragile state in his life. He's over 80 years old now. He has led the Israelites out of Egypt. He has experienced all of the plagues. He has been traveling with these complaining people all of these years. He's been up to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And God has promised Moses that he will go with them and he will lead them into the promised land. And then you know the story. By the time Moses comes down that mountain, he finds God's people surrounding a gold calf that they have put together, celebrating, worshiping this gold calf. They've forgotten about God already. And Moses is so angry that he takes those tablets and he throws them on the ground and they shatter into a million pieces. But it's not just the tablets that shattered that day. It was Moses' dream for God's people. That God himself was going to lead them into this promised land because now God has seen what's going on. And he says to Moses, I'm going to destroy them all. I'm going to start all over with you, Moses. And we're going to do the Noah story all over again. We're starting over and you'll be the one I start with, Moses. And Moses begs God, God, you can't do this. If you do this, the Egyptians will never know what a good and gracious God you are. And so God relents and he changes his mind But he tells Moses in Exodus 33, three, that I'll let you go, but I'm not going to go with you. I'll send an angel to guide you, but I can't go because I'm afraid I may end up destroying these people along the way. And Moses's heart is just broken. And in the midst of that emotional turmoil that Moses must be feeling, he asks God, will you just show me who you are? Will you show me your glory? Will you, will you show me your essence, God? And the response that God gives to Moses is not one that anyone would have expected. The one who spoke the universe into existence, who parted the Red Sea, who was accompanied by thunder and lightning, who just threatened to destroy the entire human race. This God invites Moses, a mere mortal, back up onto the mountain. He says, Moses, you step into the cleft of that rock and I'm going to tenderly cover you with the same hand that shaped these galaxies. And he promises to let all of his goodness pass by. And he says, after I've passed by, I'll release my hand so that you can see the back of me. Because that's all the goodness you'll be able to take in without dying. God is about to reveal to Moses and to all of us here today who he essentially is. It's what this series is all about that we're calling the name. God defining himself so that there will be no more confusion, no more distortion, no more misunderstanding going forward of who he is. He's publicly announcing his resume here. The undefinable is about to define himself. And so for the first time in scripture, the Lord repeats his personal unspeakable name twice. Yahweh, Yahweh. A name that Moses would have recognized from the first time he heard it beside the burning bush. I am who I am. And then he reveals his character, his essence. And he begins with these words. I am a compassionate and gracious God. Isn't that just fascinating that that's how God starts? Because if I were God, I would have started with, I am the almighty. I am the all knowing. I am the all seeing. I am the all powerful master of the universe. I would have done like the Wizard of Oz thing, right? With the curtains and the smoke and all of the speakers going and how dare you approach, you know, the magnificent Oz. But it's not what God does. 
He begins with, I'm compassionate and gracious. My heart feels for you. And it's not just a feeling that sits there. I'm gracious. I actually act on those feelings towards you. And then last week, Jason led us through the next words he speaks. I am slow to anger. And we were reminded that it's a good thing that we have a God who gets angry because it's a righteous anger towards sin and towards injustice. And who would want to follow a God who's not angry about the sin and injustice that's in our world today? And yet he's slow to become angry. He is patient with us. And then today we come to what I think is the most important descriptor of all. And it's not just because I'm the one teaching on it. I think scholars would agree because it is the one characteristic that God repeats twice. And if you know anything about the Hebrew language, there was no punctuation back then. So the only way to emphasize something was to repeat it. If if God were doing it today on his Facebook or on his Twitter, he'd put those two little explanation points over to the side. But here he repeats it. And he says this, I am abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now we're only going to look at the first part of that, but I wanted you to see that he repeats, repeats this. I'm abounding in love and I'm maintaining love. And the word that's used there, that's translated love in this passage is a very interesting word. It's the Hebrew word hesed, hesed. And what makes it interesting is there's really no English word that it corresponds to it. In fact, it's translated 169 different ways in six different English translations of the Bible. So your Bible, if you use the NIV, will just say love. But other Bibles will say things like goodness and kindness and mercy and steadfast love. Uh, The word, the compound word loving kindness was actually originated in 1535 just to try to describe this one word, hesed. But fundamentally, it is a kindness. It's an unexpected and undeserved kindness. Michael Card, who is a singer-songwriter in our day and an author, you may know him. uh, He was so fascinated with this word. He was so transformed by the thought of God's hesed love that he wrote an entire book about it. It's called, um, what is it called? It is called Inexpressible uh, because he just couldn't get over it. But I love the definition that he uses in this book of his. It's this. He says, Hesed is when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. The idea of this kind of love combines two different ideas. It's the idea of love and the idea of commitment. In other words, my love for you is not really based on you. It's not based on how you respond to me. It's not based on how I'm feeling at the time. It is a setting of my will to love you. It is a covenant love. It is a committed love. Not something we see too often in our world today, is it? People aren't committed to much of anything these days, but to themselves. Marriage isn't working for me. I'll just bail. Job isn't exciting enough. I'll quit. Friendships requiring too much of my time. Time to unfriend. The college doesn't meet my expectations. I'll just transfer to another one. Even in our churches, we see this, right? The music's not my style. The the preacher's not as good as the one I listen to on the podcast. And so I'll just switch churches again. My small group is full of people who, who annoy me. So it's time to drop out of it and start all over again. I remember Irwin McManus saying one time, great churches aren't built on people who come and go. They're built on people who come and stay. Commitment, real commitment's just hard to find in our days. But in the midst of this, God says to Moses, 
That's who I am. I am abounding. I am overflowing in a committed love towards you. That word hesed used over 250 times in the Old Testament to describe our God and how he feels towards us. And I think that's interesting because I think so many people have a misconception of the God of the Old Testament. It's almost like we think there's two different gods, right? There's the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament is kind of old and he's mean and he's grumpy. And, you know, he watches Newsmax TV all day and he's ready to kill anybody and everything. And then there's Jesus, his son, who goes off to college and he gets all these liberal ideas about grace and mercy. And he comes back to heaven like, come on, dad, these people aren't so bad. Let's give them a break. Let's go down and rescue them. Or we think of the Old Testament as just a collection of moral stories that we can tell our children about some good people who just couldn't catch a break from God. Let me tell you, those were not good moral people in the Old Testament. If you really read their stories and dig into them, most of them couldn't even work in our children's ministry because they wouldn't pass the background check. But in the midst of that, the story of the Old Testament is a God who remains faithful. His love never wavers. He continues to pursue them and to go after them and to hunt them down so that he can love them. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the meaning behind his name, Yahweh. I am who I am, who I've always been, who I'll always be. God hasn't changed. And so he says way back at the beginning, this is who I am. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. And I don't think it's by mistake that those are the two words that came up on this Sunday, on Father's Day Sunday, because those aren't two words that we often associate with dads in our day. But I think if we could begin to see our heavenly dad this way, that it would change everything for us. If we just understood his love for us, this God who says, I love you so much, I've engraved your name on the palm of my hand. I know the the number of hairs on your head, I'm aware of them. I know when a hair falls off your head. Look, Kathy and I are grandparents right now. We're crazy banana cuckoo over both of our grandkids. We have a two and a half year old granddaughter and a younger grandson. And our granddaughter gets to spend most Friday nights spending the night with us while her parents have their small group at their church. And, and the minute we put her down to bed, we have one of those little monitors, those video monitors. My wife picks it up, turns it on and does not leave that monitor. She carries it around the house with her. She puts it by the bedside when we go to bed at night. She just watch. It's like she's a hawk watching. I'm like, what are you watching? That she's just sleeping. I woke up one night at 2 a.m. She's laying there watching the monitor. But as obsessed as she is, as attentive as she is to that grandchild, you know what? She doesn't know when a hair falls off a of Callan's head. But you know who does? God. His nanny cam is always on. The depth and length of God's love revealed in scripture is just shocking. It's hard to describe. And so what we see God doing is he tries to help us understand it by revealing it through stories because it's hard to describe. It's hard to put it in propositions with something that we have to experience and feel. And one of the stories that I think best illustrates this for us is found in the Old Testament It's a bizarre but beautiful story. It's the story of the prophet Hosea. Uh, It's told in the book of Hosea. Hosea was this godly man, this prophet, this preacher for God, who had an unusual assignment given to him by God. And that's saying something because a lot of people had some unusual assignments in the Old Testament, right? Noah, go build an ark, even though you haven't seen a drop of, of rain. Uh, Elijah, I need you to sleep on your left side for 390 days. Ezekiel, 
want you to go bake some bread, but not over a charcoal fire. You're going to bake it over a pile of dung. Um, Jeremiah, I want you to go smash some clay jars at the city gates. And here's a great one. Isaiah, you're going to walk around naked for three years. I mean, that's, but this one tops it. Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute and I want you to have kids with her. Huh? Yeah. And, And by the way, her name is Gomer. Huh? Like double, huh? Right? Don't tell me the Bible is boring. But this is what God asked of Hosea. And why? Why would you make me do this, God? What's this story about? This is God's way of making it real for us, showing us what it feels like to be cheated on over and over again. So Hosea, she's going to cheat on you, but you're going to stay married to her all the way through it. And here's why. Because I want my people to see that they have a God who is committed to them, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness. And this is how he says it in Hosea 2, 19, how he feels about his people. I will commit myself to you forever. I will commit myself to you in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love. There's that word, hesed, and tender compassion. That even though you cheat on me over and over again, you look to other gods, you look to other things, you look to other people for your hope, for your comfort. You start to trust in those things. And yet you will see what my love looks like towards you through the prophet Hosea. I mean, Hosea was not only the original, most interesting man way before Dos Equis came out. Uh, he has to be the most underappreciated man in the Bible as well, because he obeys God. He does it. He marries Gomer. They have children. He's loving his life in this family, but immediately she starts cheating on him with man after man after man until one day she finally just leaves him and moves in with a man who is abusing her. And Hosea's heart is broken and he's constantly pleading with her, come back to me, come back to me. And she refuses. One night he even travels in the middle of the night to the house just to give the man some money so he'll take care of her basic needs because he's not taking care of them. And it's like Gomer doesn't notice it or even care about it. And eventually this man sells her back into the sex slave trade. And God comes to Hosea and he says, I want you to go buy her back off the auction block. Can you imagine? Hosea had to be thinking, God, you can't make me do that. Please don't make me do that. That's humiliating. Everyone knows what she's done. She's broken my heart, God. This is all her own doing. Why are you making me do this? This will be so humiliating and embarrassing. You're going to make a fool out of me, God. And God says, Hosea, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress. You love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. And that includes you, Hosea, though they turn to other gods. Hebrew scholars tell us what that scene would have looked like. Sex slaves in those days were stripped down naked so the buyers could see what they were getting. And so you have all these men crowded around, just yelling, putting in their bids so that they can abuse these women and take them home for their own gratification. And there stands Hosea in the middle of them making his way through that crowd of drunken, vile, perverted men. And now he finds himself at the front, face to face with his wife. She's stripped naked. He looks at her. She's cheated on him. She has no interest in him. And the guys are yelling out their bids. And finally he gets up the courage and he raises his hand. And he said, I'll I'll top the highest bid. I will pay whatever it takes 
to take her home so that she'll be mine again. God was trying to reveal his heart through Hosea. He was trying to give Hosea a glimpse of his love. And he says, Hosea, you and I have given our hearts to people who utterly reject us. And we're going to spend the rest of our lives, our time, our efforts, our energy going after these people. The kind of love that no one would expect. This is a scandalous, reckless kind of love. Hosea, I want you to understand the depth of my love for my people. And one of the most remarkable verses in all of scripture, I think, is Hosea 11.8, where God says, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. God wants us to hear this morning. My love is steadfast and kind. It is faithful. Even when you are faithless, it remains loyal. Paul will later write in 2 Timothy, if we are not faithful, he will still be faithful because he must be true to who he is. And just like every other book in the Old Testament, all of this points us to Jesus because Jesus is Hosea in this story. He is the one who buys us off the auction block of sin and death. We're redeemed, which just means we've been bought back. Because we're Gomer in this story. We are the ones that stood naked in front of a holy God with all of our sin exposed, nothing hidden from him. And God says, I've seen the ugliest parts of you and I'm staying. I know that one thing about you that you don't want anyone else to know. And I still love you. I will buy you back. I will redeem you so that I can set you free. Hosea paid a bunch of shekels for Gomer, everything that he had. But Peter would come along years later and say, that's what Jesus did for us. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from this empty way of life that was passed down by your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus was the perfect manifestation of God's Hesed love and his faithfulness. In fact, John would later use the Greek equivalents of those two words in his New Testament book when he describes Jesus as full of grace and full of truth. The covenant love of God and the faithfulness of God come together in one person and it culminates on a cross that God demonstrated his love for us by his willingness in spite of us to buy us back no matter what the cost, even if it cost him everything, and it did. And when you really understand it, when you get that, it has to change your heart. It has to. It will change the way that you see people. It will change the way that you live your life. Quickly, I want to just point out three ways that I think change when you understand God's Hesed love for you. And the first one is this. It will give you confidence to just be you. Just be who God created you to be. So many people live their lives trying to please or to live up to other people's expectations. Some of you are here today and you've lived your entire life trying to please your earthly father. And no matter what you do or how much you try, you just can't seem to gain their approval. And you're exhausted and you're worn out and you're feeling a little depressed. Well, I've got good news for you today. You can quit trying because you have a heavenly dad who loves you, who is already pleased with you. He's not asking or expecting you to do or be anything other than who he's created you to be. You be you. Nothing will bring a bigger smile to your dad's face. It's why he made you. If he wanted another one of them, whoever them is, he would have made them twins, but he didn't, right? He wanted you. 
So just look to the person next to you and say, he doesn't need another you. Come on. He doesn't need another you. He's got me. And even when you fail and you will, you can know that his love is not contingent on how you perform. It's intrinsic to who he is. It is steadfast and it is constant. So relax, be you high schoolers. That one truth right there would have changed my life. If someone would have just told me that 40 years ago, because it will free you up when you don't have to prove yourself to anybody to just be you and love people for who they are. Second thing I think it will do when you grasp this kind of love that God gives us is you'll have the confidence to approach him with the biggest, deepest dreams and desires that you have. You can ask big because you understand his heart is big and he's gracious and he's kind. Sometimes we fail to grasp that about our God. And so we just don't ask when our little, uh, when our boys were little, when they graduated from kindergarten, I made a deal with them that when they graduated, uh, I would take them anywhere in the continental United States uh, on a father-son trip. Now, I don't know if I didn't really explain continental United States and what that entailed, because I'm thinking we're probably going to Colorado or California or you know Florida, some of the big destinations. But my oldest son got to that age where he graduated and he said, dad, I want to go to Houston. And I said, okay, uh, why? And he said, well, because Carmen is in concert there. If you know Carmen, uh, yeah, Crystal's clapping. So uh, we went to Houston to Carmen in the middle of the summer in Houston. Did I mention that? Uh, And it turned out God redeemed the whole thing. It's where he gave his life to Christ. So it was awesome experience, but come on, anywhere you want to go and Houston's what you choose. And then my youngest son, who's here today, he said, dad, I want to go to Oklahoma. And I said, we're not doing that. We're not going to Oklahoma. There's nothing to do there. So give me your second choice. And it was San Antonio. I want to go to San Antonio. I want to see the Alamo where Davy Crockett fought. So that's where we went. Um, And, you know, San Antonio is a great city. His wife now is from San Antonio. So it may have been a sign way back then. Um, But come on, anywhere. And you chose San Antonio. It was only my middle son who's here. He's the imaginative one. He's our actor, our thespian. He's always thinking big. And so he says, dad, I want to go to New York. I want to see a Broadway show. And so we went because he asked. See, when you fully understand your father's heart towards you, that he loves you and that he is kind and he wants big things for you, it gives you the confidence to just ask. You know, Moses' response after God's goodness passes by, he falls to his knees because he can hardly take it in. But then once he gets where he can kind of compose himself a little bit, you know what he does? He sits back up and he makes another big gutsy request of God. And he says this in Exodus 34, nine, Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, then go with us, please God go with us. I think that sliver of doubt that God might not go with him into the promised land was just weighing on his heart. And he more than anyone knew these people don't deserve this. They're a complaining bunch of crybabies. I know they don't deserve this God. But he's asking on the basis of Hesed that God has just revealed. Remember the definition when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Moses, the great prophet of God, kneels before the Lord in worship and asks for Hesed because now he knows that he can. And so can you. What is it you're holding back from asking God for? Ask. He is kind hearted towards you. He loves you. He delights in that. And then finally, 
I think when you understand God's love and faithfulness, you will have the confidence to weather the storms and the difficulties this life brings our way. Our tendency is to want to define God by what we experience rather than by who he says he is. And so difficulties and challenges, they come into our lives. They come into every life. Maybe your marriage is faltering or your finances are in the tank or your health is going downhill. You start asking questions like, why am I still single? Or why did I have a miscarriage? Or why that diagnosis? Or why is my family so dysfunctional? And you think, it just doesn't feel like God loves me. How is this being faithful to me? But listen, God's love is not based on how I feel or what I'm going through. God was pretty upfront. Remember when Jesus said, in this world, you'll have troubles. You will. That this, the, what a sense broken world is like. It just is. So my perception of God cannot be based on how I feel. It's based on how God pursued me, what he did for me, that he bought me, that he forgave me on the cross. That's why the writer of Hebrews would later say that the gospel is an anchor for our soul. Because you know what an anchor does, right? In the midst of the storm, in the midst of the waves, in the midst of all that comes upon you, the anchor holds you steady through it all. And so that is the gospel. When we think about what Jesus did for us, that's what you can hold on to. You can say, look, God, I don't know what you're doing here, but I know you love me because of the cross. And by the way, it's okay for you not to know how things are going to work out. We all have questions that we want answers to. Why did this happen? Why are they going through that? And I think there's just a quick three word response that we don't use often enough. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, but I know that there's a sovereign God who does know and that his love is steadfast and it's faithful and it's kind. You know, Jesus's words we just read earlier in this world, you'll have trouble. You remember how that ends, but you take courage. You take heart because I've overcome the world. I am bigger than whatever problem you're facing right now. And I love you and I'm faithful to you. That is Hesed love. A love that says, I'll be faithful even when you're faithless. I'll be loyal When you're disloyal, I will stay when you try to leave. And look, I know it's hard to believe that there is a father who is really like that. Sounds too good to be true. But there's a father who is always, always, always faithful. Because maybe your dad wasn't. And there's a father that is always loyal. Because maybe that wasn't your dad. And it's hard to believe there's a father who will always be there, stay there regardless, because maybe your dad bailed a long time ago. And so you find yourself sitting here today and you're a little bit jaded. You're a little bit cynical. You've distanced yourself from this God. You're prone to wonder. You've headed off for the distant land. And all the while, your heavenly dad stands on the front porch and he watches and he waits and he looks ready for you to run towards him. The minute he sees you coming, he's running towards you. Because here's the deal. God is not like your dad. You are like your dad. You are flawed and you are broken. And you're in need of a savior. A true father whose love is steadfast and loyal and loving and faithful. And I hope this morning you leave here understanding that that's exactly what you have. And now we get to celebrate that that's what we have as we come to the Lord's table. So if you have your elements with you, if you will just uh, take those. And we remember the night that Jesus sat around that table with his friends the night before he was betrayed. And he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. 
take and eat it. Let's do that. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. And it represents the promise that I'm making to you, the new covenant that I'm making, that I will come back for you one day. And that God's dream will finally be realized where I will be your God and you'll be my people and we'll live together forever. So drink it and remember me. Let's continue in worship. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.